Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Jenny Deer. She's written a new book, What Does It Feel Like to Die? Unlike other books on changing the medical system or what you can do to prolong your life, Deer's book is an unapologetic, honest, and often counterintuitive and ultimately hopeful look at when a patient passes through the peak of anxiety, knowing they are going to die, and what follows. Based on research and interviews with doctors, nurses, psychologists, and other experts, and informed by a deep sense of curiosity and compassion born from years of witnessing hospice patients' experiences, this is a revelatory look that is both grounded, blunt, and even spiritual. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Jenny Deer. Jenny, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to have you on. You've written this book, What Does It Feel Like to Die? Inspiring New Insights into the Experience of Dying. Now, you wrote this out of personal experience. I mean, w- dealing with your mother's death and, and you sort of threw yourself into this research. I'm wondering, how did your friends react when you started researching death and dying? Was that like conversations change at parties? I mean, did people want to talk to you more about it? Because there's not people that are, you know, I mean, how, how did, did your life change at all as you started researching the book and talking about it? That's such a good question because I have to tell you, parties got kind of complicated for me. If I, if I talked to someone and they said, what are you working on? Then I, I always hesitated because you say death and dying and you get some really different responses. And one is suddenly the person's gone to get more food and wine. (laughs) You're not talking to anybody. And sometimes people got really excited about it. And sometimes people told me just beautiful stories about their their experiences. So it it was varied. Wow. Okay. So that you had the full spread of human kind of reactions there from flight to uh, engagement. (laughs) You're right. So, you know, it's... One of the things you talk about is that people say, you say in the introduction of the book that people are like, oh, there's not, there's no, people don't talk about this enough. And you're like, well, that's not actually true. Like since the 80s, there's been this sort of massive amount of literature and, and, and things like that. But it, it doesn't always uh, quite get to the phenomenological end of it. What's the actual experience like? And you even talk about, I think in the intro, somebody says, you, you watch death on television and in movies and it's so like it's my wife's a nurse practitioner and she's dealt with a lot of death and dying and we were recently recently watching an episode of the affair where one of the main characters dies in pancreatic cancer and there's the the death uh rattle and everything and she's like finally an experience on screen that actually looks like it's actually like what it's like when someone's dying and that's just so seldom the case right in popular culture Right. And I talked to one researcher who said, you know, most of the scenes on television and movies, somebody sort of has all their family gathered around them, and then they take a last breath and they conk out. And and it's a lot more drawn out. It's a lot different from that. And so our stories about death and dying don't match the reality when people actually have to deal with it. You have a great quote in the book. You said, it stood out. 
for me, somebody was in the dying process and they said, no one in the Bible dies like this. <laughs> <laughs> and you're talking about like, oh, there's all this like wisdom. These ancient traditions are, are repositories of, of wisdom. And yet they don't narrate the actual experience. They, they can tell you about redemptive suffering and finitude, but they don't actually give, give much insight into the actual experience of what it's like as it's happening. Right. And I, th- and I think that's what made me so curious about the subject is, and I, I talk a little bit about this in the book, but my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer and she had the disease for six years before she died. And so she went through all the, the um, chemotherapy and radiation and the double mastectomy. And in all that time, nobody talked to her about the physical process of dying until she enrolled in hospice and she was three weeks before her death. And there's so much information about it. And I think having access to that information can be really helpful. Why do you think no one thinks to share that? I mean, it, 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 do you think it's, they don't want to discourage the patient or do you want, you know, I mean, we're just, is it just avoidant stuff? I mean, why? Cause it seems like that is valuable information. I think there, there must be a, a host of different reasons. And I, th- and I, th- you know, I think one of them is we, we don't have a great relationship with, with death and dying in this culture, but I don't think it's our fault. I think people, people start saying, Oh, we're so awful at death in this country. And it, and we don't see it on a routine daily basis. So how could we possibly be comfortable with it without working at that? Right. And I, so I think that's true for medical professionals. And I think it's true for patients. And they get caught up in this game where I'm not going to bring it up if you don't bring it up. And I'm not going to bring it up if you don't bring it up. And I don't think for the most part, people mean to be in that game. Yeah, I think of that scene from the Monty Python movie, The Life of Brian, where they're, you know, they're, it's in, you know, medieval feudal times and, 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 and it's like the plague scene. They're like, bring out your dead, bring out your dead. <laughs> we don't, I mean, we've, and, and you think about that though, in, in much of pre modern life, death is in your face in, in ways that are, we have sanitized it, we control it, you know, we, we, we have sort of like de- most of, of, Reality, if we can help it, is a death-free zone, right? And I th- and I I can't remember his name, but I remember this philosopher who I read who said it's natural human nature to be in denial about death. That's that's something that's where our brains go. And so if you don't you don't have the Monty Python scene in front of you, then you're not gonna you're not gonna face the fact that you're immortal. Yeah, you have this great phrase in the book. And you tell a story about this guy, I think his name is Steve, when he faces the existential slap that that all of us know, none of us think we're immortal. I mean, everyone knows they're going to die. And yet knowing it, it's sort of like, you know, it, it, until it's sort of like uh, Columbus sailed across the ocean blue in 1492. So what? Two plus two <laughs> equals four. So what? I mean, these are matter of fact kind of truths, like we're all going to die. So what? But when you're going to die and your life experience starts to change because of it. That's like the existential slap where things change. And that can be hard for people, right? Right, right. Nessa Coyle, this nurse researcher, came up with that phrase. And and the psychiatrist that I talked to said, you know, just just what you're saying, we, we know intellectually that we're going to die. We know that as children, we we see plants and animals die. We know it's going to happen. But there's something deep inside that doesn't believe that. 
until until we get some kind of information or experience that makes us go, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's one of those things where it's almost you have to sort of like we, you know, just to function, right? We have to, we often have to sort of have, even if you consider yourself a pessimist, you know, you can't weigh all the risks in life and you sort of have to project at least some positivity to get through things, right? And and the existential slap really challenges your ability to do that, it seems. Right. And uh, and what happens in the best cases is if if somebody goes through that existential slap, so say say you're diagnosed with a terminal disease, you you suddenly have to rethink your plans for your future, your ideas about who you are in the world, your ideas about about meaning and work and existence. And so it really is this, for most people, this really difficult existential experience, right? Where you go, what, who am I? What's the meaning of life? But in the best cases, you can rethink that and come to a, a deeper understanding of what's important in life. And so, you know, the, the people who are the best at it sort of get that when they're a lot younger. So you're living your life day to day about what's most important instead of waiting till your last few weeks or months of life. Yeah, right. If you if you're regularly entertaining questions of of meaning and importance, it, it, I guess it, it's an easier transition than if you're kind of, uh, you know, kind of blissfully unaware. Yeah, if you're not asking deep questions, I mean, this is Martin Heidegger, right? The great philosopher wrote Being in Time. He talks about the importance of being unto death and how death is this solitary experience. You know, you can't die with, you, you die yourself uh, and you can't learn about it really from anyone else's death. You can learn th- things about it, but ultimately it's your own experience. And, and he thinks something about it, this finitude of it is what gives life this sense of possibility because you can't, you, you can do anything, but you can't do everything kind of thing. And that sort of, and part of death, it, it's a horizon that makes, you know, finitude is what makes life life. Right. But but very often it seems like we we try to suppress that as as much as we can, and so it, it really creeps up on us when when things start breaking down, right? It seems right. And I and you brought up the the hospice patient Steve that I write about, and and he was just amazing in that he was enrolled in hospice. He had a hospice nurse say, you know, you're getting really close to death, and he agreed. And the nurse left the room and his wife, who was trying to get him to accept that he was dying, said, you heard her, right? You're, you're dying. And he said, well, that's just her opinion. And I, and it, and he's such a good example of the depths to which we'll go sometimes to say, no, 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 life isn't finite. And didn't he actually, I think you were right about him. Didn't he actually, when he goes into hospice care, think, well, I can always get out of it. Like I can change if there's another treatment. Like he, was he the one that kind of like, he was (laughs) sort of like. One foot in hospice care, one foot out, <laughs> which yeah. is amazing. And he did. He got he got out to do some aggressive treatments and experimental treatments, and and ultimately they they didn't work. And he he missed the chance, or the way his wife saw it was, she wanted to explore what death meant to the two of them, and to to even deepen their connection more. And she was, you know, she was grieving at his death, but she was also excited about the possibility to deepen that connection. And he never really had the chance to do that. You write about the stages of grief, uh, Elizabeth Kubler, Ross's stuff. It's, and, and this is one of those things that's 
almost ubiquitous in the culture, right? Like people, it, people have, even people who haven't thought about dying have, you know, cause people use it to do, to talk about other kinds of grief and loss. But you talk about one of the things it's not prescriptive. It's not like denial, then anger, then bargaining, you know, except like these things are, 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 dis, are descriptive, not prescriptive. These are cycles of grief that they don't necessarily go in order. These are just things she thought she saw common patterns in grief. Right. And, right. and you talk about the dangers when people try to take it. I'm like, all right, first I've got to do into denial. <laughs> I'm not grieving correctly here. You know, that, that's, a, that's a real problem, right, that you, you found out in, in the stages with grief stuff. Yes. And I, I'm laughing when you're talking about how pervasive that idea is. I remember an episode on The Simpsons where I think Homer goes through all the, all the, the stages. But it is. But it is dangerous because people think that there's stages that you have to go through all of them and that they go in a certain order. And if you haven't gotten through with one, then you're, you haven't experienced the other one. And it, and it turns out that's not how people experience grief because we all experience it so differently. And I, I think of, um, in my family, I have a brother, a sister and my dad. And when my mom died, we all knew as sort of a baseline, we all loved her the same amount, if that's something that you could compare or measure. But we grieved in such different ways, where my dad had to take it in little bits over the years. And my brother really wanted to wash my mom's body. And I went in and taught classes the day that she died. And um, and yet we knew that we, that we were processing in our own ways. And I and I think that was really helpful, and may, maybe partly because we started out from a sense of common love and grief, so we didn't have to prove to ourselves or others that we all loved her equally. Were you and your mom pretty close? We were really close. Yeah. Was how much of the book was working through your own grief? I mean, how much of it was sort of the way you process? That it it was not because I started the book. I'm not three or four years ago, and by then my mom had been dead for ten years. But I went. I had done an earlier project that's still sort of in composition, where I'd gone through the letters that she wrote. You know, um, over years we'd saved almost all the letters that she wrote to us, and so I collected them. And as I read those. I really, I really went through just missing her so much and, and getting that she was gone. You, you write about cancer patients and you talk about one of the things that research has shown that people that have studied cancer patients, I think you talk about how one of the common things is they want to remain living life as normally as they can. And you, you, right. It's so interesting. You say that, that really one of the things that is behind this is they're struggling with loss of control and and that that part of this desire to live life normally like before the dying maybe the existential slap but the, the feelings of limitation is you know it's it's gradual loss of control and, and this desire for normalcy is often an attempt to stave to stave that off right i mean because we everybody's like loves control right it makes us feel powerful i mean and this is one of the biggest challenges it seems to when you have a life-threatening illness, is this loss of control. Yes, you're right. And I think that's part of the acceptance. If you, you know, if you're going through this process, 
you you go through whatever stages in whatever order, but at some point, if you reach a kind of acceptance, I think it's it's partly part of that is accepting that that you don't get to have control, right? And I and I've also read that one of the issues we have in this country, one of the things that makes it particularly difficult for us to face death and dying is we're so used to having control and not having any limits. And so we think we don't have to die. (laughs) We're modern Americans. Yeah. This is why I think it's so traumatic for us. I think sometimes to watch like tropical storm coverage and stuff, right? Because so much of life we can control. And yet when things like that just come in and destroy modern life, we don't have, you know, in pre-modern life, you can't control most anything, right? <laughs> but yeah. but we live in that delusion of control, right? Right. I'm interesting interested. Do do you so you you talk to all these people who are physicians and different experts researching death and dying? Did you feel like you were in kind of a fraternity or a secret society? Like, oh my gosh, you're one of us now. You're one of the people that's actually looking at the thing people don't want to look at. <laughs> I, I felt like I was a, an admirer of, of the people I talked to. They were just uniformly, especially kind and generous people. And I thought that that must be sort of a self-select group. But what they would tell me over and over again was, they felt privileged to work with dying people. And I remember one psychologist telling me, she said, you know, the people that I work with, they have this special wisdom that I don't encounter elsewhere. And then she added, but some of them don't know it yet, right? <laughs> right? And I think that's frequently true, that that you have access to a different kind of wisdom when you know that you're dying, that the rest of us don't. But we don't we don't grab that immediately, and many of us don't grab it ever. One of the things that I, I, I was struck by, you have a whole chapter in your book about where you die. And again, this these scenes in the movies where everybody, they die at home with everyone, because mm-hmm. no one's working. Everyone can just get off for the entire <laughs> period of a three-week period where everyone, someone's, you know, slipping, and everybody, it's, you know, but you, you talk about these decisions and how there are pluses and minuses to to hospice care or versus like being uh, hospice care in the home versus being in a hospital and and how you might change your mind, you know, because certain things are available to you in a hospital, especially around managing pain and, and, and clinical people all the time. There's, there's people that are experienced with this uh, all the time and that could be, you know, an upside. And so these are, I mean, it seems like, again, uh, one of these, this is another sort of thing where you, you might imagine it one way and the, how things can unfold and you have no control in it. I mean, even that, right. Even this basic thing of, of where you die, you have very little control depending on how circumstances can play out. Right. Right. And it, it really struck me in the, in the research that, that the, the person who knows they're dying, if that, if, if that happens to me, if I get diagnosed with a terminal disease, that person is in many ways very different from the person I am now. And my needs and desires will change and, the, and, the, and they'll change over the course of that process too. So I, I think I want to die at home and a hammock outside, but, uh, but you know, I may be hurting in all kinds of ways and, and sensitive to, to things that I'm not sensitive now. And, and yeah, you're, you're really, change. And so I think that's one of the factors. And then another one is people don't think about 
the messy process of dying, that you lose control of your digestive process, that you may very well be in pain, at least at different points, and that that hospitals can sometimes be the place to be. The one place that researchers agreed you don't want to be if you can avoid it is the ICU, because then you're much more likely to be subjected to invasive procedures that are going to make dying painful. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcasts, projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ken Skillman, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Jennifer Spate, Ben DeHart, Joel Wentz, Jordan DeMice, Samantha Conower, Simone Garabedian, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Crest, Stephen Rowe, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jody Stevenson, Andrew Stravitz, Glenn Stolfner, Greg Johnson, and Kai Winkhenig. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. Yeah. Yeah. This is, it's interesting too. You talk about how uh, it, death in an emergency, that certain kinds of death, like if, if you, if you die suddenly from a gunshot or something, you're not going to have a big experience of dying uh, the way, the way you will. If again, you're, if it's a slow degenerative disease or something, but yeah, that, that these kinds of things that the body has natural processes, which in a place like an ICU can be interrupted in, in ways that can make the experience uh, worse than it needs to be, maybe? Yes, yes. I um, remember one nurse researcher I talked to who looked at pain for people who were unconscious specifically, and she said that you can, you can look for signs and symptoms. You can figure out if somebody's experiencing pain. And she said, whether you feel pain when you're dying depends on a lot, right? On, on the condition you have, on how well you're treated, but I can guarantee you that if you're in the ICU, it's going to be painful because you're going to have tubes and IVs and, and it's going to be loud and it's not going to be private and, and it's not where we want to be. Yeah. Cause they've got kind of one job, keep you alive. Like that's, I mean, and, 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 you know, there, and there's certainly many instances where you want to be in that ICU, but, right. but in certain instances where you're near death and dying, it, it can be a place where uh, that sort of, uh, charge to keep alive might might need to be arrested or interrupted or, or slowed down. And it's just, you can't do that in an ICU. Right. And there's, there's so many emotional and spiritual and, and people-centered things that 
that people can do when they're dying and they they can't do if they're focused completely on the medical aspect of it. And it, and that's a major criticism of how we do death and dying in the US is we medicalize it because because we know how to do that. And it, and again, that's really helpful if you're able to save someone's life and it can be really helpful as it was for my mom in extending life. But but there's times when it's not helpful at all. You have a section of the book where you talk about pain and people dealing with pain and pain management in death. And you have this great quote that uh, you were talking to this person, um, uh, Eric Castle, I think. And you quote him saying, pain isn't suffering and suffering isn't pain. Like the two, they, they might be related and come together and be connected in some ways, but you can't reduce the one to the other. And that that needs to be thought about when dealing with end palliative care and end of life things that these that these things are they might come in connection but they're not the same thing right and Aaron Cassell I never talked to he's famous for having written about the differences between suffering and pain and 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 he points out that pain is experienced in in the brain right so so there's not a direct connection between somebody pricking your finger with a needle and you're feeling physical pain and so so the very definition of pain is it's connected to your mind and and therefore we can help people and people can help themselves by by treating your your spiritual needs at the same time that we're offering you some kind of opiate or or something for the physical part. Yeah, you you also say that you learned something in the research that somebody said the suffering that people experience in death can often be connected to unresolved issues in life. Which and and we could we could miss sort of diagnose or we could we 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 could sort of uh, project it. Oh well, this is, is something that can be managed with certain kinds of medical care, but no, oftentimes it's existential stuff that's contributing and causing suffering. And that's a really interesting insight. Right. I, one nurse told me that when they've treated all the physical symptoms and someone is still complaining about the pain, then they go, oh, there's something else here. There's something else going on. And that frequently they're able to address that pain by, by through counseling, through a chaplain coming in, or or even asking a patient more about about what they're thinking about or what what kind of what the pain is like. Yeah, it's interesting. Where in, in in much of the country, we're in an increasingly kind of secularizing trend. I mean, and again, in parts of the country that's more true than others. But I find often people are finding like surrogate clergy, like they ask a friend to marry them or something, or or do we often people are trying to recreate. Uh, you know, this, this void that religious traditions used to fill in, in a secular society, you know, there's not, you know, you need to find, you still have these experiences. Do you become ever surrogate clergy for people because you've done this research and they know? And I mean, do, do people that ne- don't necessarily have religious or spiritual traditions they're in, do you, do they go to you like, Hey, you're the death whisperer. You know, what, what, what do I talk about here? What, what do I, what am I feeling? I, I don't think in that sense, I think w- the way that, that people have asked me about death and dying is is they're dealing with the experience for the first time and it suddenly opens up 
this whole load of questions and they go, Oh no, I don't know anything about it. My friend, Jenny, she, she wrote that book. <laughs> I'll, give, I'll give her a call. Or the other way that I think that's been perhaps more spiritual is that um, when, when I've done readings or when people come and tell me that they've read the book, they, it, it gives them this space to think about so many of the things that you go through with dying. And for a lot of them, there's, there's a wonderful spiritual component when, when you lose someone and it, and it's horrible, right? It's awful and hard and, and shakes up your whole life. But there's also this beautiful, for lack of a better word, a sacred space around someone who's dying. And I, I don't think that we always experience that. I think it, that, that um, especially if somebody's in deep denial and they're they're fighting death until the last minute, it's less likely to happen. But but when that appears, then there's there's not a great space for people to talk about that. And that and it exists, right? There's death cafes. There's there's all kinds of places out there, but there but there aren't enough of them, and there aren't enough that people encounter regularly. And I think that's where the book just opens that up. So people can say, oh yeah, my mom's death was like that. It's interesting. You talk about doing readings and people coming up to you to talk and and, and connect. I found myself as, as I was reading the book, there were times where I was deeply moved emotionally. And there are other times I found I had was having awkward reactions, awkward physical <laughs> reactions, reading the stuff. Did, did anybody else, did, have people described that like feeling awkward as you, because you you write so well and you describe things so poignantly that that sometimes I I felt myself just physically uncomfortable as I was reading it. That's that's so interesting that you say it was a a physical discomfort. And I I I want to say first that in a in a way that's part of what I I sought because what was so difficult for me was that nobody had, nobody. Had talked to me about that and nobody had talked to my mom about that and so just the knowledge is a kind of preparation and it and the knowledge includes both the possibility of of beauty and developing yourself and growing but it also includes that it's not it's not easy there's physical pain there's discomfort and um, and I think the the case that um, is most striking to me about somebody who was uncomfortable with the book is my brother, and he he did the introduction for me at our local bookstore, and he said, you know, I am I am so caught up in in living life fully that that I don't want to read this book, and I and it was really hard, and. And I thought, oh no, <laughs> I've got the wrong person introducing me. But he went on to say, I get that the, the the ultimate goal in thinking about this subject is living life more fully. Yeah, there's a guy I I I, I read a lot of. Uh, he's dead now, but he was a psychiatrist named Frank Lake, and he was a religious guy. I was trying to integrate in this thousand page tome like religious insights with psych psychiatry but he says in the beginning that you know when we treat our life like a container that should be full of all these good things uh, and yet when we're struggling and suffering which so much of life is we open the cupboard and it looks like the cupboard is bare we have this like crisis because you know if we realize that 
the purpose of life isn't to contain things, but to be a channel of spiritual energy, then, then, then the wisdom is to let the bottom get knocked out of humanity because it, that ruins it as a container, but makes it wonderful as a channel. Mm-hmm. And, and it seems like you have this section on post-traumatic growth and it's like, it's, there is a possibility after the bottom gets knocked out for a channel of real spiritual and, and, and existential energy. It's hard to lean into it, but but it is possible that life can have a, a new fullness in, 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 a, in, a, in a paradoxical way, right? Right. I just went to a, a Buddhist retreat on love and death, and the person running it, Roshi Joan Halifax, has done a lot of work with dying people. And she said, somebody said, so what, what's the connection between <laughs> love and death? And she said, death cracks you open. It, it opens you up. And so you're, you can be more connected with other people. You can see what's important. And in the same way, I think that you're, you're talking about the, the bottom getting knocked out of your life, that, that extreme trauma allows us the chance to rebuild, but, but none of us wants extreme trauma and rightly, (laughs) right? Yeah. You, you had this great insight in that section where you say, you know, this, this definitely can happen, but. Be careful about expecting it to happen. It's again a control thing. Oftentimes, the way this kind of growth happens is unpredictable. It's unexpected. You can't manage it. You can't control it. So, sort of expecting it is one of the things that can often impede it. Right? <laughs> you right. can't. Have, you can't come to these expect. You can't come to these hard experiences expecting. All right, you know, silver lining at the end of the cloud or anything like that. And especially as the as a relative or friend, you would never want to ask that of, of a dying patient, right? And I think that's, that's one of the dangers when we don't have this, this healthy, normalized relationship with death and dying is we can deny that it exists, but we can also sort of fetishize it and think that we, we want to delve into the, the sexy parts of it. And, it, and it's not all sexy, and you never want to place that kind of false expectations on other people. You, you talk about near-death experiences and how there's all sorts of strange things that brain does and how people, even when they have heart attacks and, and things that simulate near-death things or, or, or at the end-of-life experiences that, that they see lights and see all sorts of I mean, these things you know have out-of-body kind of experiences. These things are are part of the mysterious way the brain works right and i mean how do you like you know how do how do you how should people like handle that kind of stuff i mean like how do you approach something mysterious and weird like that i i liked what a couple of the researchers that i interviewed said they they said you know we're not, we're not trying to explain away the spirituality or the or the possibility behind near death experiences we just want to understand how that happens in your brain. So your brain, when it's shutting down, turns off its ability to turn off parts of its operations. So it might respond by showing light when there is no light. And and that might be the physical explanation for that light at the end of tunnel that is a classic part of near-death experiences. But it it doesn't mean that it's it doesn't have some other meaning too. And a, another researcher said, you know, I, I'm, I can describe physical experiences. I can study those. But it's, it's kind of not my department to explain 
or prove whether there's life after death. And, and maybe people, maybe that's not something we need to even look for, right? Why would you look to science to prove that there's, that that's something your faith asks of you to believe in? Did, did you find yourself thinking more about the afterlife as you did this research about those sorts of things? I don't think I did. I, I think I am such a literal person. And and what I was hungry for when I set out to write this book was, was research information, the evidence-based information. And and I felt like like that was the big gap that I wanted to focus on on filling for for now. And I and I also think that that part of the impetus for me, part of what drove me to want to write the book was, was the something extra, was the part that the, the, that the book barely touches on, which is what, what is it that creates that sense of sacredness around what, what we call a good death? Yeah, that is, it is something that we, you, you talk about in the book, it is something that often people traditions talk about and, and and at least oftentimes is in the back of our heads right like wanting to die well which again is one of those things that's so hard to control but but it is sort of a weirdly aspirational right 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 and i and you know i think of joan halifax made a joke at one point where she said you know i've done all this work with death and dying and done all these talks on it and yet for all i know when i get close to death I'm not going to handle it well. I'm going to be afraid. I'm going to be in denial. And so it it isn't that the work isn't helpful because it helps a person live more fully, but we don't have any guarantees that when we hit something that that big and that frightening that we'll do it in a way that that feels good to us and the people around us. It's like doctors sometimes make the worst patients. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You you talk about Something I found incredibly moving. You talked about uh, somebody who'd done some research and uh, has some guidelines about things that, for succinct statements, dying people should say to their loved ones, or, or things that they they should maybe have like on the tip of their tongue, or 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 at least explore, be open to. Please forgive me. I forgive you. Thank you, and I love you. And he also adds goodbye. Uh, but I, I think there's four things. I, I just, I, I, you know, I think about how uh, how so often we say I'm sorry to someone, and people say it's okay, right? Which which is saying, you know, it's interesting because it almost immediately it sort of minimizes the transgression or the rupture, right? It's this, it's a, but but those saying things like "please forgive me" and "I forgive you" enters into the the breach that's been. Caused in a way that, and I think, like, gosh, how great would it be if we said those things more often, not just at the end of life, but actually didn't do sort of the, oh, it's okay, it's okay, but actually, when we were hurting, actually acknowledged it, you know, as the person acknowledged they hurt us and really, you know, allowed some space for healing to happen. Mm -hmm. That's those are the um, the four sayings come from Ira Bayek, and he says. The same thing that you're talking about, that that he realized you want to say those things now to the people that you care about. And he tried that with his mother. And and I think he said he wasn't he was not there at the moment of her death. But because they'd already they'd already had these talks, 
he felt a sense of completion and wholeness about her dying that he wouldn't have felt otherwise. You know, I, I, when you do a work like this, I mean, I wonder, did, how, did it change you in any way writing this? I mean, doing this research is because it's, it's, again, it's spending time at, at a place where a lot of people don't spend time. And, and, and I wonder how is that, how is it to go through that experience? You know, I I think I thought that when I set out to write it, I thought, oh, I'll be like an enlightened Buddhist or something by the end. I'll start levitating, right? I'll have dealt with with life and death and I'll have figured it all out. And and of course, that isn't true, right? That I think that takes a kind of of time and concentration that, you know, if I were ever to get there, it'd be a long, long time from now. But I... But I do think that it, I do think it's helped put priorities for me front and center. And I think it's, it's a reminder of Henry David Thoreau saying about most men lead lives of quiet desperation. So a reminder that, that the people around us have undergone something like this before. And just, just knowing that, I think, makes you try to be kinder and and more connected. Yeah, and that that's such a uh important thing right in a world where despite the fact that we're more connected through the internet, through telecommunications, through travel, we often feel so disconnected from one another and from the deep things. Yeah, that quiet desperation they seem to almost have gotten worse with all our technological advances, right? And so what a what a what an important thing to try to cultivate right that that sense of connectionness connectedness to to things that are really deep and abiding right but i but you know you i think we we are so quick to blame the internet and technology and yet what's allowing us to have this conversation right right, right, now? right yeah yeah and uh, and uh, and you're right we when we get too caught up in this it'd be much better for me to be having this conversation in some ways with my friends right that the the people in front of you allow you a depth of connection that that you're never going to get online so so yes and no well i'll tell you if it's a book uh it's a great book that you've written and it made me feel uh more connected to deep things and and some uncomfortable things <laughs> but <laughs> but it it was a really great experience reading it thank you for writing it and thanks for spending some time talking with me about it thanks very much Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Jenny for coming on the podcast. Do check out her book, What Does It Feel Like to Die? You Won't Regret It. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.